a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being a part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. I will warn you right up front that uh, the message I have to share isn't for everybody. And that doesn't mean because everybody who doesn't like it is dumb or otherwise, you know, just doesn't get it. Uh, the fact of the matter is there there are some things that are just a little bit uh, too painful for some folks to consider right now. That's okay. We're all somewhere on that journey of, you know, trying to uh, to sort out fact from fiction, as, as Paul Rosenberg puts it, to slog our way out of the swamp of misinformation. All I'm trying to do is help those people who are serious about that journey because it's a journey that I'm still very much uh, you know, taking part in myself. So if I can leave a few breadcrumbs or a few, you know, knocks blaze a, blaze a little trail on the trees as I go, you know, that's what I'm trying to do. And thank you to everybody ahead of me who was kind enough to leave some uh, signposts or trail markers to follow. Having said that, Thanks so much for joining us again. <clears throat> Our program is brought to you in part today by Alta Bank, also Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, and Monticello College. I will be having Dr. Shannon Brooks join me as a guest uh, for a segment uh, here within the next few days. And we're going to talk a little bit about what it means to, to be a LIBOR-educated individual. Now, I know it sounds snooty <laughs> and probably kind of upper crust, but... Um, I will tell you that uh, th- there are a few things that will make a bigger difference in your life that than, than becoming liber, able to think, reason, measure, discuss, weigh, and you know sort things out for yourself as opposed for waiting you know as opposed to waiting for some expert to tell you well now this is the way it's going to be here have a cookie and run along now that I've told you the way it's supposed to be. Speaking of the way it's supposed to be or the way that it is, it's pretty tough right now to get a clear picture of where we currently stand. I mean, this we are in the post-Trump era of mass media, what do I say, mass media deception, gloating? <laughs> they, they, they sure are happy. I mean, the, the, some of the, the glowing and just absolute adoration, it's clear. We're, we're dealing with, with an almost religious fervor in terms of many within the mass media about this change in, in Washington is the most important change. And it's, it's clear, there's, there's some pretty big stuff going on. We're going to come at it from a couple of different angles, though, today. I want to share with you uh, a few excerpts, because it's a very lengthy essay, but Angela Cotavia has a very detailed analysis and prognosis of where we are and how we got here. It's called Clarity in Trump's Wake. And, and it's not just about Trump. This is about um, historically, culturally, societally, politically. How did we get to this point? And uh, Angela Cotavia is writing from, you know, the he's writing from the, the eyes that have experienced a lot of this. I don't, I don't know exactly how old he is, but um, I will say this. Angelo is no spring chicken. 
but there's a wisdom in what he is uh, saying and in what he is analyzing that is definitely worth checking out. Here's the flip side of that coin. <clears throat> I mean, we know that one figurehead has been changed for another figurehead in Washington, D.C., right? Trump is out. Biden is in. How much has really changed? What has really changed about the way that, that uh, Washington, D.C. does business as usual? And the reason I ask this is because Thomas L. Knapp says, you know, aside from the soap opera differences that we saw between Biden and Trump, D.C., for the most part, is really just back to business as it's always been which is kind of disturbing in and of itself. So, yeah, there are some, there are some big changes that are taking place, and at the same time, the, the fundamental operating premise of Washington, D.C., which is something along the lines, I believe, of might makes right, um, hasn't changed at all. And this is true with most elections. You know, not to get into a bunch of deep state stuff, but think about how many bureaucrats remain unaffected by virtue of who is in the White House. I mean, there's a massive, massive bureaucracy that doesn't really change, and it doesn't, doesn't matter how the election goes. That's the thing a lot of Americans are missing right now. They may be obsessing over, well, but, you know, Biden's going to build back better. Yeah, but in the meantime, there's a government boot on the back of your neck. You don't notice that? You don't care about that? I mean, you complained when it was Trump's, but for some reason, if, if we take that right boot off of your neck and we put a left boot on there, oh, hey, oh, that is much nicer. Oh, thank you. Thank you, sir. May I have another? We'll also spend a little bit of time uh, talking about what's taking place under the rubric of Build Back Better. I'll tell you, it's only been two days, but President Biden has been very, very busy. And Simon Black has a, an excellent essay about how Really, the motto should be build back bitter because that's the direction that things are being taken. There's, there's a lot of bitterness and a lot of haste right now to undo all those little areas in which government was slowed down or otherwise uh, stopped from advancing, you know, its, its quest for unlimited power. All right. Possibly the most important topic we're going to cover, though, in this hour is, look, if the powers that be are really serious about consolidating their control over the populace, and, and I have to believe that's partly what we're seeing right now, it's a pretty safe bet that we are going to see some dramatic changes in monetary policy sometime in the near future. Think about it for just a moment. I mean, you don't have to go too far down the conspiracy rabbit hole to realize that if you control a nation's monetary supply, you have incredible control over their economy, over the day-to-day lives. I mean, look at, look at how difficult it can be for people who just for whatever reason, you know, can't access their bank account. Yeah. So we'll talk about what money is and what it isn't. My friend Rob Nielsen has a really helpful essay on the subject. Definitely going to find time to get that in there as well. In the meantime, what a weird place we are right now. I, uh, I talk with my biological father on a regular basis, um, and here's, here's where I really feel it. Um, there's a lot of stuff we talk about that has nothing to do with politics. But it's super clear that uh, he is definitely on uh, one side of the political spectrum, and I am, I'm on uh, another side of it. So we don't let that be a huge stumbling block, but I, I'll tell you, the last couple times I've talked to him, I see the concern, I hear the concern in his voice, and I see the concern in his eyes, we Skype, um, 
because uh, because he's he's you know pretty invested in in the uh, mainstream narrative of hey we've got to stop this uh, domestic violence or the, I'm sorry this domestic terrorism and 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 he's it's very clear he he sees that uh, the the target that is being laid out across uh, millions of Americans who have never harmed a soul nor nor desire to is uh, is covering me as well in other words he sees that uh, that uh, what i do what i stand for um is going to be seen as a threat by some of those in power and it does it makes things awkward just a little bit i i know i'm not the only one who's experiencing this you probably are seeing it too for me what makes it kind of tender is look he and i've never actually even met face to face he got his first covid vaccination yesterday he's feeling very encouraged and very optimistic that you know finally we're getting, you know, to a point where, you know, there may be some normalcy. And so I hope that he and I have that chance to, to meet. But I can see he's concerned. He's concerned because uh, there, there's a very dangerous rift. And, and how, <clears throat> how dangerous that rift becomes is going to depend largely on how determined those who currently hold the, le- the levers of power are uh, to force their hand and consolidate their power and and really um, subjugate the people that they feel they need to control, which is pretty much everybody who is not already in lockstep with them. That's a that's a spooky proposition, and there are a lot of different ways they're going to try and do this. I you know I, I'm sitting back in wonder and looking at this and just going, it's it we've seen it coming, but. Now that it's here, any person who is awake and and paying attention can't help but feel a sense of, okay, when is this going to come apart at the seams? I don't have the answer to that. But we're going to get a better understanding of where we are when we come back, just the other side of the break here. I'm going to share a couple of uh, excerpts from Clarity in Trump's Wake from Angelo Cotavilla. It's, it's an essay you will find in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is a lengthy essay, okay? Angelo, I don't know if he gets, if he gets paid by the word or not, but he, his, his writing is very thorough. It's very detailed. But more importantly, I believe it's accurate. And that's why I'm, I'm commending this one to you. Find the time. Come on, we got the weekend coming up. Hopefully you can find some time to sit down and, and digest this. And, and again, you may not agree with some of his conclusions, but I think historically... He's, he's filling in enough of the details that it gives you a pretty clear picture of how we got from there to here. I'd rather know, just so I can get my bearings. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. So I'm going to be sharing with you in a few minutes this uh, essay by Angela Cotavilla, Clarity in Trump's Wake. It's, this is not just about Trump. It's actually a great essay that has uh, some, some very significant historical milestones and connects the dots. How did we go from the the kind of uh, the kind of rules and the kind of laws and the kind of traditions and mores that uh, that shaped the American Republic since the 18th century to one where we are essentially under an oligarchy today 
He's got all those details coming up. Before we go there, though, I want to offer um, a contrasting point of view. And um, I don't know, you know, I'm trying. I'm still trying to reconcile, okay, is everything changing? And yet some things are staying the same. Thomas L. Knapp makes a pretty convincing case here when he talks about the Trump-Biden handoff back to business as usual, as usual. Here's how he puts it. He says, few will find it surprising that the incoming Biden administration looks in both form and function a lot like the Obama administration of 2009 to 2017. After all, Joe Biden served as Barack Obama's vice president for those eight years. His staff and cabinet appointments comprise a veritable who's who of Obama holdovers and members of Biden's own political circle built over decades in the Senate and White House. Now, some, however, might be surprised at how closely Biden's administration will likely resemble outgoing President Donald Trump's, both personnel and policy-wise. In other words, the new boss looks a lot like the old boss, minus a flair for the melodramatic. And the old boss looked a lot like the older boss, too. Thomas Knapp says Trump's 2016 campaign and his actions in office were a classic case of multiple personality disorder. He ran on draining the swamp, all the while recruiting from, then staffing up with the usual gang of ward healers and lobbyists. He ran on a less interventionist foreign policy when he wasn't bragging about being the most militaristic candidate and promising to rebuild an already bloated military. Then he escalated every war he inherited from his predecessor and rebooted the old U.S. war in Somalia, after which he tried to pass off his drawdowns to 2016 troop levels in Syria and Afghanistan as withdrawing and did his damnedest to bait Iran into a new war. He ran on cutting taxes. His income tax cuts were intended to be temporary. The bill doubled the standard deduction for two years while eliminating the personal exemption permanently. Congress made things permanent later and included a soak-the-rich scheme, the state and local tax deduction cap, and were more than eclipsed by the tariffs he levied on American buyers of foreign goods to protect the American industries with the most effective lobbyists. He ran on cutting regulations and issued an executive order that he claimed required federal bureaucracies to repeal two regulations for each new one. It really only required those bureaucracies to identify two regulations for repeal, not actually repeal them. As of three days before his inauguration, the Federal Register included 1,079,651 regulations. On December 31st, 2020, that number was 1,090,371. Now, he ran on cutting entitlements and welfare then presided over the highest levels of both since the New Deal, not reluctantly, but joyfully. And not solely due to the COVID-19 pandemic, but starting with lavish farm subsidies set to or to offset the damage his trade wars did to American culture. On the culture war side, his embrace of identity politics differed from the American pseudo-left version, only in terms of the complexions, sexual orientations, and gender identities of those he championed versus those he condemned. Even on his signature issue, immigration, he came in second behind Barack Obama and Joe Biden on the numbers of immigrants deported. So Thomas Knapp says the differences between Donald Trump and Joe Biden are and always have been soap opera opera differences rather than substantive differences. Americans looking for more freedom from either were and are looking in the wrong places. Business as usual never paused. That's a pretty bitter pill to swallow. 
And I would understand if uh, perhaps you're shaking your head <laughs> going, hey, I don't think that's right. But, uh, but I would understand if, if, you, if you're feeling like this, is, uh, this just isn't, isn't a fair portrayal. But the reality is, no matter how good his intentions, um, the swamp was too much for Trump to really become a political savior. And, and, and shame on people for believing that uh, problems created by politics could be solved with more politics. All right, that said, let's shift gears for a moment here. Simon Black, writing for Sovereign Man, writes about Build Back Bitter. Now he says, it's over, everybody. Everyone, you can sleep easy again. The party of peace, tolerance, and reconciliation is back in power. Amen and a women. They claim they want to heal and unify the nation, but clearly the only way to do so is to create enemy lists and silence anyone with dissenting opinions. For example, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez asked, is anyone archiving these Trump sycophants for when they try to downplay or deny their complicity in the future? Robert Reich, Labor Secretary under Clinton and advisor to Obama, tweeted, When this nightmare is over, we need a Truth and Reconciliation Commission to name every official, politician, executive, and media mogul whose greed and cowardice enabled this catastrophe. Chris Hayes, an an MSNBC host, agreed, saying, The most humane and reasonable way to deal with all these people, if we survive this, is some kind of Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And Dick Costello, the first C- the former CEO of Twitter, said, Me first capitalists are going to be the first people lined up against the wall and shot in the revolution. I'll happily provide video commentary. Well then, clearly social media companies like Twitter are a big part of efforts to unify the nation. Twitter deleted 70,000 accounts using the trespassing of the capital as an excuse. Amazon Web Services removed the alternative social media site Parler from its servers while Apple and Google deleted Parler from their app stores. Facebook and Reddit joined the purge, feverishly removing content they don't want their users to see. Stripe, PayPal, and Visa announced they would stop processing payments to certain politicians and nonprofits guilty of thought crimes. And Simon Black says, Yesterday, I read in the completely fair and objective media that simply acknowledging this tech purge makes one a conspiracy theorist. Axios News wrote a segment titled, Right-Wing's New Conspiracy, The Silencing. <laughs> they went on to say that only, con- only crazy conspiracy theorists believe that there are efforts to silence conservative voices. In other words, if you believe what you see with your own eyes, you're a conspiracy theorist. Most recently, for example, Harvard has purged Congresswoman Elise Stefanak from its advisory board. Stefanak's crime? Well, she publicly questioned voting irregularities in the 2020 election. Now, some people may think that she's a terrible person because of her beliefs. And in fairness, it's Harvard's right to choose whoever they want for their board. But now there's a petition from the woke Harvard mob to revoke her her degree, effectively erasing her existence from the institution. They want to cancel her. Yet even merely acknowledging that this is happening now makes you a conspiracy theorist, according to the media. The left's cries of defund the police have turned into fund the secret police as lawmakers reintroduce domestic terror bills to create new units under the Department of Homeland Security to monitor American extremism. But the hashtag assassinate Trump and hashtag kill Trump hashtags that Twitter has allowed since 2016, ah, that's totally fine, free speech. During the summer, BLM riots, looting Target stores and burning down police stations were acts of courage. 
They even literally declared an independent autonomous zone and took over government buildings. Yet no one in the media ever used the words insurrection, sedition, or treason. AOC praised these mostly peaceful protests and said the entire point of them is to make people feel uncomfortable. But if you feel the slightest bit uncomfortable that 25,000 troops were in the nation's capital along with tanks and attack helicopters, then you guessed it. You're, you guessed it. You're a conspiracy theorist. Just remember, though, ignorance is strength, so we should probably just obey the experts. Trust in Social Security to provide retirement. Trust the Federal Reserve to improve the economy. Trust the media to tell the truth. Trust that tech companies will continue to allow your free speech. I'll have a link to Simon Black's article in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our program brought to you in part today by Alta Bank. Yes, they are a mortgage lender in my home state of Utah. My friend John Staples is the guy you need to talk to if you are interested in securing a home loan or refinancing your existing home loan. Jump on it, though. Interest rates are super low. You'll find the contact information in the sponsor links at the bottom of today's show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Let's jump in here to Angela Cotaville's article, Clarity in Trump's Wake. And he starts with a quote from te- Texas v. Pennsylvania et al. This was the uh, case that went to the Supreme Court challenging some of the election results. And there's a quote here that says, either the Constitution matters and must be followed, or it is simply a piece of parchment on display at the National Archives. Now, Angela Cotavilla says, Texas v. Pennsylvania et al. did not deny setting rules for the 2020 election contrary to the Constitution. In fact, on December 10th, 2020, the Supreme Court discounted that. By refusing to interfere as America's ruling oligarchy serves itself, he says the court archived what remained of America's of the American Republic's system of equal justice. That much is clear. Okay, here comes a painful truth. He says in 2021, the laws, customs, and habits of the heart that had defined the American Republic since the 18th century are things of the past. Americans' movements and interactions are under strictures for which no one ever voted. Government disarticulated society by penalizing ordinary social intercourse and precluding the rise of spontaneous opinion therefrom. Together with corporate America, it smothers minds through the mass and social media with relentless, pervasive, identical, and ever-evolving directives. In that way, these oligarchs have proclaimed themselves the arbiters of truth, entitled and obliged to censor whoever disagrees with them as systemically racist adepts of conspiracy theories. (laughs) He's right, though. Corporations and the government itself require employees to attend meetings personally to acknowledge their guilt. They solicit mutual accusations. While violent felons are released from prison, anyone may be fired or otherwise have his life wrecked for questioning government corporate sentiment. Today's rulers don't try to convince. They demand obedience and they punish. 
He says Russians and East Germans under communists Linoid Brezhnev and Eric Honecker in the 70s lived under less ruling class pressure than do today's Americans. And their rulers were smart enough not to insult them, their country, or their race. In 2015, Americans believed, or could still believe, that they lived in a republic in which life's rules flow from the people through their representatives. In 2021, a class of rulers draws their right to rule from self-declared experts' claims of infallibility that dwarf Baroque kings' pretensions. In that self-referential sense, he says, the United States of America is now a classic oligarchy. And then he goes on to explain how this change happened and the clarity that it has brought to our predicament is its only virtue, he says. Now, if you've been paying attention, you understand oligarchy has long been growing within Americans, America's Republican forms. The 2016 election posed the choice, he says, of whether its rise should consolidate or not. And consolidation was very much in the cards, but how that election and its aftermath led to the fast, thorough revolution of American life depended on how Donald Trump acted as the catalyst who clarified, energized, and empowered our burgeoning oligarchy's peculiarities. These, along with the manner in which the oligarchy seized power between November 2016 and November 2020, ensure that its reign will be ruinous and likely short. The prospect that the Republic's way of life may thrive among those who wish it to depends on the manner in which they manage the civil conflict that is now inevitable. So hopefully that sets the stage to to give you some incentive to read this. I mean, he goes into great detail from here about... uh, you know the the move towards uh, towards oligarchy, from ruling class to oligarchy. He talks about uh, the Trump catalyst, dogs that do not that bark do not bite, etc. Logic and dysfunction, the COVID uh, for, fortuna, and the sovereignty of the vote counters. I mean, this is a very very detailed essay. It's not going to be something you're going to knock out in you know twenty to thirty minutes. But as he says, as America's primary, as American primary and secondary education's uh, dysfunction have become painfully apparent, he says parents of all races have been fleeing public schools as fast as they could. Businesses have been fleeing the Rust Belt for the Sun Belt for generations. And particularly with COVID, he says when Democratic governors and mayors used COVID to make life difficult in their jurisdictions, what happened? People moved out of them. Twitter's censorship of conservatives has become undeniable. Parler, in response, added customers by the hundreds of thousands each day. Facebook and Twitter stock lost $50 billion in a week. Much more separation follows from the American people's diverging cultures. And I guess that's, that's the key. We're at a place where we have two different cultures. And he says, as conservative America sorts itself out from oligarchy's social bases, it may be able to restore something like what had existed under the Republic. Effectively, two regimes would have to learn to coexist within our present boundaries. But he says that may be the best, freest arrangement possible for now for the United States. By the way, I, I found a copy of this book that I have been looking for now for a couple of weeks. I finally found it. It was right there in my nightstand where <laughs> apparently it was buried under a bunch of other books. I don't even know if this is still in print. I don't know if you can find, you know, paperback copies. The book is called Highland, H-E-I-L-A-N-D, Highland. And it's by an author by the name of Franklin Sanders. I'm just, I want to read you, this is off the back jacket. 2020 A.D., 
America is divided into two societies, the insiders and the freemen. One is founded on the worship of death, the other on a new obedience to God. Can they continue to live side by side in the same country? And Franklin Sanders was just, he was writing a novel, although there's a ton of great historical um, information within that novel. But he was pointing to a divide that I think we are see play, seeing play out for us. And it's, it's a little bit freaky, too. That I mean, this book was published back in, I think, either the late 80s or early 90s. It's been around for quite a while. But he pegs 2020 as one of those years that was just, you know, pivotal. And by the way, in the book, you know, this is post, uh, there, was a, there was a failed revolution that took place, a patriot uprising that took place in the book. And it failed. It was crushed by the federal government, at which point you, you saw the division become essentially urban versus rural. So if you lived in a rural area, you pretty much were part of a different economy. People were free to do their own things, coin their own money. They were, they were free to, to live and govern themselves and, and did so. In, in this book, it talks about, you know, kind of a, a church-based system of common consent where, where people would come together and solve their community problems, but they solve problems at the very lowest possible levels. The cities in the meantime, and this is the part that gets just a little bit freaky, anybody who, who wants to travel or work within the cities has to be rigorously documented. And, and because it would be tough to carry all that paper around, um, everybody has a, a tattoo, an invisible tattoo um, that is scanned onto their hand, that, that they then have to scan, you know, to prove that they're who they say they are. Everything is very, very tightly controlled. The monetary system has totally changed. Everything is 100% under the control of the government. And and it's, it's interesting because you, you see a lot of, you know, big palatial government buildings. He describes, you know, the bureaucrats who work there. He talks about the industries that are favored. And, and some of the developing uh, culture, when he calls it the culture of death, it's not just, you know, uh, abortion. It's also euthanasia. And it talks about, uh, you know, there, there are companies in the, at this time that will, that will pay people to, uh, to take the easy way out. Make room for more people on earth. Come on, you've had your, your fun. We'll even pay you a little bonus here. We'll bonus you 10,000 credits if you just agree that at age 55, we can slip a needle in your vein and you push the plunger and you're done. Now, we're not there yet, obviously. But you want to talk about the difference in cultures, and, and it's, it's very clear. And, and the question is, in this story, can these two societies live side by side? I'm not going to spoil it for you, but I will tell you it's a very exciting book. And, uh, and in many ways, I think it, it, uh, it paints a, a very interesting parallel to, to what we are facing right now. We have two very different societies. And, and look, maybe I'm oversimplifying this. But the part of the society that I want to be a part of, the, the one that I resonate with, is the society that is going to um, leave other people alone, that's not interested in trying to, to force everybody to, to do you know, what, what they think is best. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back right after this.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I probably should have led off with this one just because I think people will find this topic less divisive but still pretty relevant, and that's money. What is money? I, uh, I'm a very happy subscriber to everything-voluntary.com, and I would encourage you, if you haven't signed up for their emails, you should do so because you'll get some great articles in your, in, in your email inbox on uh, just about a daily basis. Here's one from my friend Rob Nielsen. What is money? And I think this is a really timely one because I think we're about to see some pretty big changes in monetary policy. And some of it may be due to the fact that spending is taking place hand over fist. Some of it has to do with the fact that there is control in a cashless kind of currency. But I think we're, I think we're about to see some, some things take place monetarily that will affect every person who needs to spend money for their daily needs. So what is money? Well, Rob says it starts with needs and wants. Actually, he starts with a quote from John Adams. Let's start with that. All of the perplexities, confusion, and distress in America arises not from the defects of the Constitution or Confederation, not from want of honor or virtue, so much as from downright ignorance of the nature of coin, credit, and circulation. That's a great quote to begin with. So we start with needs and wants. And Rob says being alive means having needs and wants. You need food and water. You need physical protection from the elements. You want comfort and recreation. Resources that satisfy needs and wants are known as goods. If people had to provide for all their needs and wants themselves, well, they wouldn't get very far. Goods are not just lying around waiting to be used in unlimited supply. They require effort and time and skill to gather, produce, refine, store, protect, combine, and use. Trying to get everything you need and want by yourself will result in mere subsistence, if you're lucky. So with other people around, you don't have to do everything yourself. You can focus your energy to be as productive as possible, trade with others to do the same. This is formerly known as the division of labor, and it allows people to specialize in doing specific things. With specialization comes increased productivity and technological complexity, and the surplus produced goods can be exchanged with others. Now, he says, if I focus on growing fruit and you focus on making great tools, we can exchange fruit and tools and both be much better off. This kind of exchange is called barter. And barter's great, but it presents some problems. The first one is called the double coincidence of wants. You need to find someone who has what you want and who also has, or who also wants, rather, what you have to offer. To make it more complicated, there are also quantity issues. If I make a large wagon to trade, but I only need a few apples right now, how do I make that work with an apple grower? And then there are transaction costs. I can't carry a large wagon in my pocket to trade with. It needs to be inspected and delivered for an exchange to be completed. And there are also accounting and pricing difficulties. How much is a wagon worth anyway? How does that compare to what it was worth yesterday? So money developed as a solution to barter problems, and it makes civilization possible. He says without it, people would be unable to organize complex production and exchange systems. Money has three purposes a medium of exchange, a unit of account, and a store of value. In past ages, he says, various goods were used as a medium of exchange, like seashells, grain, cattle, 
and metal. Now, there's naturally high demand for the most marketable and saleable goods. The Latin word for money, property, and wealth, pecunia, comes from the ancient word for cattle. Roman soldiers were often paid with salt. Latin's sal. This is where the word salary comes from, as well as the old saying, worth is salt. The word money comes from the Latin moneta, which is where coins of precious metal were made and stored. Precious metals naturally rose to the top of the money charts because they are scarce, long-lasting, and valued by weight. Gold in particular became the standard for money because it's uniquely suited to serve the purposes of money. And, and he lists some of these reasons why gold eventually became most widely accepted as money. The scarcity of gold earns it a quite stable market value due to limited and stable supply. And while not strictly intrinsically valuable, valuable rather, gold also has a strong and stable demand for use in jewelry and various industries, making its value less dependent on changes in demand. There's also the high value-to-weight ratio of gold that makes it easy to transport and store. Even today, a one-ounce gold coin is valued at nearly $2,000. You could buy a nice new car for less than 30 of such gold coins. The, homogene the homogeneity and fungibility of gold also give it distinct advantages since every ounce and even atom of pure gold is identical. There's no need to worry about the quality of each ounce of gold like there is with diamonds, for example, let alone shells or cattle. And the divisibility and malleability of gold is another reason for its stable value. It can be melted and reshaped in any quantity without losing its substantial value. Then there's the recognizability of gold, from the simple bite test of past ages to various sophisticated modern methods to make it, that make it difficult to pass counterfeits. And the indestructibility and extreme stability of gold as a chemical element make it excellent for long-term storage. Most everything from centuries-old sunken ships has decayed or been dissolved by the ocean, but the gold coins are completely unchanged. He then talks about banking and how banks were originally warehouses for the safekeeping of gold and silver. Receipts or certificates were issued for gold and silver deposits redeemable on demand. People soon came to trade the paper notes instead of the gold and silver because it was much easier to trade pieces of paper with money on them. You could always just turn in the notes for the real money later. In the U.S., paper silver certificate dollars from as late as 1964 were redeemable for actual silver at the Treasury. In fact, the word dollar comes from an abbreviated name for a large silver coin in Northern Europe. Even today, many banks offer access to safe deposit boxes where you can store anything valuable for safekeeping. And you can still pay a bank to store gold and silver coins for you, but banks came to offer other options that don't require payment for safekeeping. So historically, if you wanted to borrow gold and silver, you needed someone rich who'd saved more than enough gold and silver to meet their immediate needs. They could then lend you extra money for a time in exchange for what's called interest, or the cost of borrowing money over time. This is similar to the cost of borrowing other goods like a hammer or a large truck since they can't be used by more than one person at once. And the lender takes the risk that their goods will be returned on time and undamaged. Now, Rob says the amount of interest a lender could charge was influenced by supply and demand and marginal utility, just like the price of other goods. So the natural limits of, of lending and borrowing come down to scarcity. You can't have your cake and lend it too, so to speak. So rather than lending their own money, bankers realized, well, hey, they could lend out the deposits of other people's money and collect interest on it. This way, they wouldn't have to charge fees for deposit safekeeping. They could even share a small amount of the interest they make with depositors instead. 
Now, if the bankers were honest, everyone could benefit from the services they provided, security of physical deposits, transaction processing, risk management of loan payments, etc. But with the rise of circulating banknotes as money in place of the scarce silver and gold they were supposed to represent, bankers realized that they could just provide receipts for deposits that didn't exist and lend those out instead. And this worked well enough as long as most depositors didn't come to redeem their receipts for gold and silver at once. However, many a bank has failed when they were unable to provide the goods they claimed to have on deposit. So to protect against bank failure, rules for how much actual money must be kept in reserve for deposits, depositors rather, were established. So banks were still allowed to make loans without having it all stored in reserves, but they had to have one unit of actual money in reserve for every $2 of credit they extended in certificate form in a practice known as fractional reserve banking. The fraction of real money, gold and silver, that banks were required to have on reserve against loans they made as credit on their ledgers and issued as paper notes began to go down in time from the original 2 to 1 to 10 to 1, 100 to 1, and beyond. So when you deposit your money in a typical bank account nowadays, you are actually making a loan to the bank for which they typically pay a small amount of interest over time. The bank can use that money to create credit to loan others at a higher interest rate, and the difference between the interest the bank pays you for the use of the money you lend them and the interest the bank charges on loans it makes using credit created by that money is the bank's profit. Now, from here, he goes on to talk about the debasement of money. I'm not going to have time to go into this uh, in great detail. You'll have to check it out for yourself. But let's just say it's a lot easier to debase paper money than it is to debase gold and silver. Today, he says, most of what we call money is simply created as debts to be repaid with more debt promises in the future. Money has been entirely replaced with debt and empty promises. It's an unsustainable house of cards that continues to be propped up by inflation at nearly unbelievable rates as reserve requirements have been essentially eliminated entirely and central banks are purchasing debt and even real assets with money they create at the push of a button. If history is a reliable guide, says Rob Nielsen, the end game of this crazy scheme will come down to hyperinflation, demonetization and debt repudiation. Talks of a great reset by the world's financial elites in the midst of current and looming crises make it clear they intend to remake and restart their schemes again on a global scale. Check it out. You'll find this in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.